Well, tonight we are jumping back into our study of 1 Peter. So I love these nights, and it's just so encouraging to get together and study the Scriptures with you guys. And we've been studying 1 Peter uh, all semester long uh, this year, so we plan to do that in the, in the spring semester as well. So if you would, you can go ahead and open back to 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to pick back up where we left off last week. 1 Peter 1. And as you're making your way to that chapter in 1 Peter, do you remember um, why Peter wrote this letter? Okay, we're going to see if you can multitask. Can you turn to it and shout out answers at the same time? Suffering. Okay, he wrote wrote because of suffering. Okay, get a little more specific. What was going on? Okay, there was some persecution happening to these churches, right? And so... He wrote this letter to this people who was who were suffering, and was it one church, lots of churches? Yeah, many churches. Okay, lots of churches across Asia Minor, not just one church. Okay, he wrote it to a lot of churches. They were experiencing various levels of opposition, um, various levels of trial uh, for their newfound faith in Christ. And so, you know, you can just imagine what this would be like. They used to go to work, they used to fit in at work, but now they don't. They used to worship the gods with their family and their their extended families. That was part of their culture. Now they don't, right? They used to give full vent to their passions in the name of having fun, living the good life, and now they don't. Um, They were accepted by the world, and they, they fit in in the world. But all that has changed now that they're following Christ, now that they know the one true and living God. Now their friends and family aren't as friendly anymore to them. They're upset that they don't practice the same family worship of the gods and that they're abandoning the traditions that were long practiced in their communities, sometimes by generations, ancestors. And at their works, their bosses treat them differently. Some of their landowners and their slave masters are really making life difficult for the workers and the slaves because of their faith in Christ. And at home, the family dynamics are more tense as well. Unbelieving husbands are starting to react now to this newfound religion that's changing their wives. The governing authorities are suspicious too. They're, what's going on here in these, these assemblies, these people that are gathering around? Who is this king? Who is this Messiah that our people are starting to worship? And so things were heating up for the church across the Roman Empire, across Asia Minor, and that's why Peter's writing this letter to try to address some of that. He's, he's helping them specifically to interpret the difficulties in their lives. He wants them to interpret the difficulties biblically, to see their sufferings as part of God's eternal purposes in these last days. In these days, Peter says, they started, these last days started with the coming of Christ and they're days that we're still in today. Things are heating up for us too, just like it was for the church then. The world is unstable. Wars are increasing. Satan's prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, and we feel it too. Christians today across the world are the most persecuted they have ever been in the history of the world. It's tempting for us to respond wrongly and to misinterpret our trials when we're in them. To not realize what God's doing in the trials when he brings them into our lives for his good purposes. And so we need 1 Peter, the letter as a whole, we need it just as much today as they did then. And when it comes to interpreting our trials rightly, we've got to realize deep down inside of us, deep in our bones and our convictions, that suffering does not mean, it does not mean we are abandoned by God. Right? We've seen that over and over in this letter. Suffering does not mean we're abandoned by God. It might feel like you're abandoned when you've worked hard, you've been frugal, working two, three jobs while you're in school, whatever, and then that you hit that unexpected major expense and drains the bank account. It might seem like God's abandoned you in the moment when that classmate stabs you in the back or you find out the coworker's been slandering you. We're tempted to wonder when our lives get very hard if we really do belong to God. You know, if I'm God's child, why am I, why is this hitting me like this? And so Peter opens up the letter by putting this to rest. Okay? 
he says, not only are we not abandoned, but we're actually chosen by God. We're elect. We're chosen by God. We're His chosen people. We're His elect people. We've believed in Christ. We've been reborn spiritually, and now we're part of God's own family. And that's precisely why we are experiencing suffering, at least on the human level. Right? We know God's in control of it, but on the human level, the reason it's hard is because we're not worldlings. It's why you feel like you don't resonate at all with your unbelieving roommate. Because you don't. It's why you might get passed over in the future when you apply for a job. It's why your progressive cousin thinks that you're a threat and you need reprogramming. And it's our election. It's the fact that God chose us. That's made us exiles here, as Peter says in the opening of the letter. We're elect exiles. Our election has made us exiles here in a world that is set against him. And that's why we feel like we don't fit in anymore. And it's because we don't. And that is actually a good sign. That's a good sign. We're different now. We're part of God's chosen people. And as a result, we're also exiles on earth. And that's just temporary because we've seen that there's a world coming, an inheritance coming that we do, that we do belong to. And it's gonna, this world's going to be remade and we are going to be the ones that inherit that world. And so Peter says in verse 1 of this letter that we are elect exiles. And that's the theme of the letter, right? That's the theme of the letter. If you just know that walking in, the theme is we are elect exiles. It's our identity. And we have to embrace that identity if we're going to endure these last days. But to be God's chosen people, okay, to be these, these, these elect exiles, to be restored covenant partners, this does not mean that our lives are just harder now only. They are harder. But to be God's people in the last days, this means that we are unspeakably blessed, right? Unspeakably privileged. It means we've been given some of the the most incredible privileges that our minds could conceive of. Privileges that Peter details out in the first part of this chapter. So just let's let's look, look, look at this again, just by way of review. He details out some of these privileges in the first part of this chapter, in chapter 1. He tells us we've experienced new birth. We have hope now. We didn't before. We have an inheritance that's coming that we're going to be preserved spiritually. There's going to be a deliverance coming that we're going to be part of. All those things, incredible privileges. But we've said that these privileges come with what else? Remember? Responsibilities, right? It comes with responsibilities. God saved us for a purpose. God didn't just restore us as his people to have us sit on the sidelines. He plans to use us and to use us mightily in these last days as we suffer. He displays His glory in among His people as we suffer, as we grow in holiness right here. And ultimately, as we spread the gospel, His mission, His dominion, it extends over all the earth. And that's what it means to be a covenant partner with the living God. He's going to use us, His church, His restored people to that end. And so that means then that we need to become, like we've said, faithful covenant partners so that God can use us more effectively in his mission on earth while we're here. And so over the last few weeks, Peter's been giving us like a crash course on how to become these faithful covenant partners. He's detailed out some of our responsibilities as his partners, beginning in verse 13. And where does it start? What's the first thing that we need to do uh, if we're going to be faithful in these last days? Set our hope on the grace that's coming. So we got to hope in future grace, is what he says. We have to hope in future grace. We have to set our hope, verse 13, preparing our minds for action, being sober-minded, set our hope fully on the grace that's going to be brought to us. We've got to align all of our smaller hopes with that one great hope that's coming. We talked about that in depth several weeks ago. And as that hope spills over, something happens. It transforms how we live. And so the second major instruction is we've got to become holy children. We have to become holy children. That holiness of God He's given us has to permeate our lives in all our conduct, Peter says. That's God's goal for us as His, as his children. We need to imitate our Father. We looked at that in depth last week. Well, tonight, we're going to look at Peter's next instruction, number three of five. And as we're going to see, this one's very similar to the last one, becoming holy children. But the language he uses is very interesting. 
Okay, Very interesting, and maybe even a little bit jarring for us. So listen for the command as we read, beginning in verse 17. He says, If you call on Him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, then conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Pop quiz. What was the command? Say it loud. Conduct yourselves with fear. Yes, that is the command. Conduct yourselves with fear. He tells us tonight that if we're going to be faithful covenant partners, we have to learn to, you ready for it? Literally live in fear. You're like, what? Live in fear? To conduct ourselves in fear. And he's saying, in the fear of our Father. Or tonight, like I'm calling it here, Faithful Covenant Partners, part three, we have to learn to live in this fatherly fear. Now again, kind of odd language, right? Sounds jarring. Live in fear, Peter says. And you say, well, I thought we were supposed to be bold. You know, like, aren't we supposed to not be in fear? What is he, what is he talking about here? Well, he's clearly not saying that we should live in, like, sinful fear, like abject fear, right? It's clearly not what he means here. He's going to actually tell us not to live like that later in the letter. So over in chapter 3, you just flip over a few pages there, you can see in verse 14, he tells us explicitly not to, not to live in fear. He says, but he's talking about suffering for righteousness' sake, and you're going to be blessed, he says. Have no fear of them. He's talking about your persecutors. <laughs> Have no fear of the people that are trying to kill you or hurt you, nor be troubled. Right? So don't, don't fear that. So he's clearly not telling us in this case to fear, live in sinful fear. We shouldn't be living in a huddle in a corner, you know, afraid of what might happen to us on an earthly level. That is sinful fear, and we've got to fight that, he says. So what is he saying here? What is he telling us to do when he says to live in fear? Well, if we pan out in the context, and like you see, kind of the hint in the, in the title here, if you pan out, he just said that if we call on God as Father, then we should live in fear. Right? You see that connection? Beginning of verse 17, if we call on God as Father, then we should live in fear. His point is not that we should live our lives in sinful fear, fearing others, fearing what might happen to us, but that we should conduct our lives in the fear of God. That's the command. We should live in the fear of God, not in terror of Him, but in awe of Him, in the most profound respect, in that joyful kind of trembling. And Peter's point is that our lives should reflect that we tremble in reverential fear before our Father. If you want to say it simply, this kind of fear, this fear of God, here it is. Here's a definition for you. This fear of God is the attitude of the heart that takes God seriously. Simple, right? It's the attitude of the heart that takes God seriously. And that means then that we're, we're, when we're commanded to fear God, you know, somebody says, fear God. That's essentially a command to honor and obey Him. Right? See the connection? The fear of God is, is we could say, rattled by His warnings. Take God seriously, right? So He gives you a warning, and you're kind of rattled by it. Like, whoa, like I need to stay away from that thing. Or the fear of God, it, it, it depends on His promises. You're going to take God seriously and He makes you a promise, you trust it. The fear of God obeys His commands, right? Like if God says, do this, you say, okay, I know that's, I know that's best. Like the Lord's saying, do this, I need to do this. It takes God seriously. This is an attitude of humble faith, really, at its, at its essence, but it has a trembling idea to it, like this I'm a creature, He's a creator, you know, He knows what's best. 
And in a word, the fear of the Lord is really this humble faith. It's very similar to what Peter told us last week in living lives of holiness, becoming holy children. And you can think of this command as sort of the attitude behind it. The fear of God is sort of the attitude behind a holy life. It's the attitude of a heart that takes God seriously. And the, the joy for every Christian is you don't generate the fear of God. Like before you came to Christ, you had no fear of God in your heart. You didn't take God seriously. You did whatever you wanted, right? You didn't really understand who God was or the implications of, of, of what he's done. But when you came to faith in Christ and you saw your sin, you believed in Jesus, the Bible says that God implanted his, the fear of him in your heart. That's part of the blessing of being in the new covenant, is that you kind of automatically, there's a, there's a responsiveness, a fear there. And so if you grew up in the church and there is no fear of God before your eyes and you don't take God seriously, it's not a good sign, right? Because every genuine believer has the fear of God implanted in our hearts. But even though we have it, we have to fan it, okay? So if you think of the fear of God as like a spark that's begun burning in your heart, you have to fan that flame. And Peter knows that we have to cultivate this fear of God. We have to learn to live in fear, like he says. Why is that? Why do we have to cultivate it? Because the pressure to fear man is very strong, right? And it's especially strong when we're surrounded by enemy territory. Or like Peter says here, when we're in exile. He says, live in fear throughout the time of your exile. Meaning, we don't belong here. This is enemy territory. The world's hostile to us. There's a lot of pressure to conform And you and I naturally don't like being ostracized, do we? Anybody like feeling left out? Nope. You know, at work, that's not good, right? They're all doing their thing. You have no idea what they're doing. They don't want you to be included in that because you're Christian. Feeling like the oddball among your classmates, those people who profess to be Christians, but they they don't live like it. And so now you're, you're the weird one. We all want to be accepted by our unbelieving family members. We don't like being represented as people who are out of touch, people who aren't cool, people who don't ever have any fun, people who are judgmental, bigoted, narrow, not inclusive enough. We crave the approval of others. And we crave even the approval of the world at times. Lots of pressure in our exile. And so Peter knows that if we're going to be obedient, if we're going to be faithful covenant partners, we've got to fear God. So how? Do we cultivate this fear of God? How do we fan the flame? How do we withstand the pressures of our exile? Well, Peter tells us here, he gives us some really helpful (laughs) truths, and he, he keys us in on how to cultivate this fear by what he focuses on in this passage. He doesn't give us lots of detail on, on, on the fear itself, but he gives us a lot of truth that surrounds this fear. He, he emphasizes the truths that will produce this fear, or at least help us fan the flame of the fear. The truths that will help us cultivate this fear. On so, he gives us lots of realities here in this passage that are supposed to be fear-inducing, right? If we believe them. So I'm calling tonight just three fear-inducing reminders, or fear-producing reminders. I'm talking about the fear of God. And I'm calling it reminders... Because most of us, I'm sure, know these things. But they are easy to forget. They're easy to lose track of in the busyness of life or sometimes even in the midst of hostilities against us. But as we bring these truths to mind, they're going to help deepen our fear of the Lord while we're here in this exile that we're in. As these days of of difficulties increase here in America, in Lynchburg, They'll deepen our fear. And these are three reminders, three motivations that will help us withstand the pressures of our exile and to learn to live faithfully, live obediently as these covenant partners that that God's created us to be. So let's jump into it here. The first reminder that Peter gives us is one that is super easy to forget or even misunderstand. And he says that we've got to remember that that, that a future judgment is coming, what I'm calling a future evaluation. Okay? We have to remember that a future evaluation is coming and that we are going to participate in that. He says, verse 17, 
And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, then live with fear. So he starts with this if-then clause. And if you do this, literally, if you call father the judge, right? If you call father the one who's judging impartially, then if he's your father, if the judge is your father, (laughs) then you should live in fear. So one of the first truths that we've got to remember if we're going to increase our fear of the Lord is that the same God we call on as Father is also the judge of all the earth. And specifically, He is our evaluator as well. We can't forget, as wonderful as it is to experience the love of our Father, and we do, we can't forget that this same Father will impartially evaluate the lives of all humans who stand before Him. And Peter says we've got to remember that. Now, there's probably some questions that pop up in your mind as we start talking about the Father and judgment, maybe even how they go together. So you might be wondering about this connection between God as Father and judge. You know, it might seem a little weird to connect them. Like, huh, thought of like Abba Father, you know, like judge. Like it seems a little bit, a little bit jarring that they're connected. But Peter does. He connects these two, and it's pretty easy for him to, to do that. And it helps to know that in the first century, in that culture, the father was clearly known as the head of household, and his household would include not just his own family, but it would also include his servants, any people that worked for him, any slaves that were part of the home. And part of what the father did for his children, for his staff, we might say, is evaluate. That's part of his role, is he makes judgments. He evaluates and evaluates performance. And you know, it's not that far off from uh, even what, what we do today in our, in our culture. I was thinking about this. Um, when my wife and I are about to leave the house and leave our children with a babysitter, most of the time, it's grandparent. I usually get down on their level, you know, right before we leave, because I know their natures. And I say something along these lines. Hey, I love you guys. You know, yeah, we love you too, Dad. And I say something like, I want you to obey Nana and Papa. And they're saying, yeah. You know, just like Israelites, we will obey, you know. (laughs) And then I say, just so you know, I'm going to ask Nana and Papa how you behaved when I come home. Because they're going to be in bed. Praise the Lord, my kids are still young, and they get to go to bed early. So um, when I get home then, they're usually already asleep. So I tell them, I make sure they know, there's going to be a reckoning. Right? I'm going to ask, and I've got their buy-in that they're going to be honest with me, and they're going to tell me how you, how you really acted. And then their eyes, you know, they get big. They're like, you going to do that? I'm like, oh, yeah. I do it every time. Because they know it's at stake if I, if, I, if I get a bad report, Right? The father as judge in the 21st century. And it doesn't mean I don't love them. I do love them. It doesn't mean I'm not tender with them. I am tender with them. Roll around the ground and play Legos and do all kinds of fun things. But I expect them to obey as their dad. And there will either be a reckoning or a reward depending on how they respond. And we have to keep these two aspects together as believers. This aspect of God and His fatherly love for us and His fatherly evaluation of our lives. Peter knows that we're tempted because of the great mercy we've received. He's told us about that in verse 3. The great mercy, the new birth. We're tempted to start treating Him casually at times. And I know I can trend this way for sure. You know, and, and so does the wider Christian culture, right? The whole daddy God stuff. It's kind of weird. But we, we trend this way. We start thinking that we're okay if I don't obey. You know? It's like, he loves me. You know, he's kind. He's merciful. We can kind of throw the spiritual temper tantrums, spiritually speaking, you know, with no consequence. That we can dishonor him with no real recourse. That's taking God casually as a loving father without realizing he's also the impartial evaluator and the judge of all the earth. And it's this judgment that Peter says. It's this judgment that it's it's literally, quote, according to each one's work or each one's deeds. Do you see that? 
And that means there's a day coming when every person, every one of us, will stand before the Lord and give an account of how we lived our lives. But depending on whether or not you trust Jesus, this event, this judgment, will have two radically different eternal outcomes. If you've rejected Christ, or you've never, you've never repented of your sin, you've, you've never entrusted yourself to Jesus, maybe you're just playing the game, maybe you're not really following the Lord, still love your sin, then the Lord will evaluate your life and judge you on the basis of your unbelief and condemn you to hell. The evil works, whether public or private, will be made known, and it will reveal that that person never repented, that they never bowed the knee to Christ, they never availed themselves of the infinite mercy of Jesus, and they will receive their just condemnation, and no one will oppose it. Revelation says that they will be consigned to hell, to eternal torment forever. And that is a sobering reality, a reality that is hard for any of us to take in. I get it. But it's true. And it's the only, and only the good, the only good and righteous response, the only just outcome for people who willingly rebel against a perfect king, people who aren't atoned for, the only response is an eternal condemnation. But what about for us? Right? What about for believers? Will we be evaluated and judged? Well, let's think through this. I want to kind of pan, pan out a little bit on this, uh, kind of outside of 1 Peter for just a minute. When it comes to the judgment of believers, okay, first thing to say is no one who has trusted Christ will ever be judged eternally and condemned to hell for their sin. It's not un- This judgment that I'm talking about is not unto condemnation. In Romans 8.1 that I've listed there, Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation. He doesn't say no judgment, but he says no condemnation. He doesn't say no evaluation, but he says no condemnation. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Meaning, for those who have entrusted themselves to Christ, those who have confessed and repented of sin, they are fully and freely forgiven. There's no condemnation. No threat of ultimate judgment. But that doesn't mean that we won't stand before Christ for an eval, right? The Scriptures teach that it's still a reality for us, too, as believers. It's not just for unbelievers. In Romans 14, Paul tells believers that we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Hear that language? We will all stand. And then he goes on in verse 12. So then, each of us, talking to the Roman Christians, each of us will give an account of himself to God. And this judgment will include what we've done in life. So we can say it's based on our lives. And it's presumably as believers. In 2 Corinthians 5, listen to what Paul says. He says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Christ will take inventory of our lives and he will evaluate how we lived it. What you did today. He's going to evaluate that. And this evaluation will bring one of two outcomes for us. It will either bring tremendous reward or, Paul says, we will suffer loss. It will either bring reward or loss. Over in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul talks about taking care of how we live our lives, how we minister for the Lord. He says if we're rightly motivated, meaning we're motivated in faith, that he, he compares this to a building a building with the right materials. You know, he's going to talk about building the church as well, like the people of God. And that's kind of the idea in this passage in 1 Corinthians 3. You're building a building with the right materials, fireproof materials. Things like gold and silver and precious stones, he says. But if we're wrongly motivated, if we're we're motivated for self, he says it's like, and we're doing ministry, you know, good things, but selfish motives. We're building in the wrong way. 
He says we're building the church with wood, hay, and straw. And then he says that each one's work will become manifest for the day we'll disclose it, meaning the day of Christ's return, the day of judgment, the day, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, meaning if he's built with these fireproof materials, spiritually speaking, if he's built with those things, if anyone's work survives, he will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, listen to this language, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved only as through fire. I don't want to be in that category (laughs) as a believer. Having all my works burned up and then just barely skate in, you know, to the kingdom on Christ's merit alone, right? Like, I mean, that's the only reason we skate in the kingdom is on Christ's merit alone. But you, you, you see what I'm getting at. It's like there's no fruit. Or there's, minimal, there's minimal fruit here. So let's pan back out. What's Peter, what's Peter doing here? Well, he's, he's providing truth that helps our hearts to rightly fear the Lord. He wants us to remember that we'll have to give an account for what we say, for what we do, for our motives. And that, he says, is a healthy, productive fear. That's the father reminding the child that he's going to follow up with the babysitter after he gets home. Right? Like, I'm going to ask, so don't be surprised. On the one hand, it motivates us to avoid suffering loss, right? That negative side. I hate wasting time, you know, on things that, that like, I mean, not that I, I like to rest. Don't hear me saying that. It's not a waste when you're resting. What I hate is when I work hard at something and I find out that it's not doesn't amount to anything. You know what I'm talking about? So it's you're working all night on that assignment only to realize that you did it wrongly and none of the work, none of the hours you put in actually counts. You got to do it over. It's like that's the worst, isn't it? That's suffering loss, humanly speaking. And as regretful as that is now, it won't compare Like, it won't compare to suffering loss on that final day. Living your life in sin, living your life in lust, in anxiety, in selfish ambition, in envy, in anger, it is an utter waste. Not to mention it's destructive, but it's a waste. All of that will burn away on the day. But on the other hand, This truth that God evaluates us will also motivate us positively too. How so? We'll make the most of the one life we have. The time is now. The opportunity is right now, today, in this moment, to bear eternal fruit to God as you trust Him and obey Him. That's how you bear fruit. You trust God and you do what He says. It's not complicated. As you deny your cravings for porn and you learn to cultivate purity, you're bearing fruit for God and that's going to last through the day. As you learn to seek the welfare of others in your conversations and stop just story-topping them all the time because of your self-interest, that will endure the day. As you learn to put up with that roommate, don't look around, okay? In love and bear with them, that that will survive the day. That won't burn up. As you learn to put in the extra time and effort into finishing that assignment or being faithful with the task, that will survive. And whether or not you're recognized in this life doesn't matter. You will be recognized by the king on the final day for everything you do in faith. That is some serious motivation. Like, Do you believe that or not? Simple question. You, do you believe that's true? Because if you do, that will change the way you live. Some serious incentive. It's some serious incentive to do what we said last week. Remember that list about holiness and like permeating it in the nooks and crannies of your life? And you're thinking, whoa, that's a lot of work. It's work unless you're thinking about it like this. Now it's opportunity. 
opportunity for fruit, opportunity to have increasing joy on that final day. So get this truth somewhere visible and review it often, right? It will motivate you to live a life without regret and full of eternal reward. Now, I know I spent a good bit of time on that point, but let's move on quickly and we'll try to zip through these last (laughs) few points. All right, next one. Next reminder is in verse 18, and it's our glorious ransom. Okay, we've already covered the back half of 17, so we're good. Our glorious ransom. We've got to know this reminder that how God's ransomed us, and that will, as we do, will implant fear in our hearts. Look in verse 18. It says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. So Peter's second reminder here has to do with how we've been ransomed. He knows that when we see clearly the great glory of what God's done for us, that 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 will fan the flame of reverence, it will fan the flame of awe in our hearts toward the Lord. Now, before we get into it, it's important that we understand what Peter means by ransom. It's sometimes translated redeem. And people who are oppressed and enslaved, they need ransoming. They need release. They need to be set free. They need to be liberated. Ransom is what happened to Israel at the Exodus. They were Pharaoh's slaves, and God ransomed or redeemed them from slavery. Again and again, the Old Testament presents this as the great act of ransom, the great act of redemption in the Old Testament. They went from Pharaoh's slaves to God's slaves, liberated. So for Israel, the Exodus became one of the greatest acts of God's redemption. But as good as it was, it didn't liberate their hearts, did it? Their hearts were still enslaved. Again and again, they went back to what? Their idolatry. Until finally they were exiled out of the land. But in exile, the prophets predicted a Messiah would come, a final Davidic king, and he would lead the people in another exodus. A second one. And it would be different than the first one. And this second exodus would include a new covenant and a liberation of their hearts. Jeremiah 31 talks about that. And it's this very liberation, this very redemption, this very ransom that Peter's speaking of here. We could call it a liberating ransom. This second exodus is in process. It's initiated by the Messiah, has already been initiated by his death and resurrection. The exodus that the prophets predicted, the second one, it's in process right now. We're getting swept up into it. And it will be consummated at the return of Christ when he gives us the land as our inheritance. And that's what we've received. And Peter specifies what exactly we're liberated from. He says we've been liberated from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Now it's important to remember that this audience is made up of mostly Gentile converts across Asia Minor. And their forefathers were pagans. Their feudal ways is a reference to their idolatrous worship of foreign gods. Had it not been for God sending Christ and a messenger to bring them the good news, they would still be enslaved to those feudal ways of living. They'd be making sacrifices to dead gods. They'd be hoping that their destinies would change in their deceptions. They'd be continuing on and on in their enslavement to sin. Now, I don't know what background you came from, but most of you are probably from Christian families, and that is good news. Praise the Lord for that. But I know some of you have not come from Christian families at all. Some of you have experienced the kinds of suffering I'm sure Peter's audience had experienced from their pagan backgrounds. The abuse, the mistreatment, the self-absorption from parents that got spilled out onto you, the instability of a divorce situation, the list could go on and on. But do you see what Peter's saying here? Christ has come and he has liberated you from that. Your past, your heritage is not determinative for you anymore. He's broken the chain of your forefathers and now he is your father. You might still feel the pain acutely. You might feel it for years, but Christ is going to help you work through it. You stick with His church, stick with His people, stick with His Word, keep learning His truth over time because He has ransomed you from the feudal ways. 
that you inherited. And this is a liberating ransom. And that fans the flame of reverence in our hearts, doesn't it? To know that our king came and got us. We want to learn to live in light of that kind of freedom, the freedom from slavery to sin. To know you're free, even if you don't feel free, to know it is a game changer. You're not bound anymore to anger, to lust, to anxiety, to patterns of your family, whatever. Because of the redemption paid on your behalf by the king. And that is fear-inducing. Awe-inspiring. This ransom is not just a liberating ransom, but it's also a costly ransom. Peter wants us to see how the Lord redeemed us and specifically how precious, how valuable, how costly it was. And he sets it up with a contrast. He says he didn't redeem us, negative, he didn't redeem us with perishable things such as silver or gold. And that's striking. Because both silver and gold are not that perishable and they're extremely valuable. Right? They're some of the most precious, valuable metals that we humans could have. But that makes Peter's point. He's saying we weren't ransomed with these earthly things, with human currency. It's probably also an allusion to Isaiah 52.3, which Isaiah says in that second Exodus context, that you shall be redeemed without money in this second Exodus. Isaiah 52.3. But in contrast to the silver and gold, Peter says that we were redeemed with something far more precious than that, far more costly, far more valuable than our most precious metals on earth. And it's really of incalculable value. He says we were redeemed with the precious, literally the valuable, the costly blood of Christ. The Messiah, Christ the King, Himself, he laid his life down for our redemption. His life has eternal value. He has an incalculable value, and his death was the only eternal payment for our ransom. It was a cost that you could never pay, ever. The cost of your sin against an eternal God, the cost so great that unbelievers will suffer eternally, it's a cost that his death paid for you. That's value, and it's fear-inducing. To see the cost our king was willing to pay, and that only he could pay it. That is awe-inspiring, because had he not come, had he not paid for it, you would have no hope. The cost was far too great, but he has paid it, and he's paid it all, and he's done it because he loves you. It shows the value of your redemption. What he, it shows the, what he went to in order to pay it. It shows how much he loves you. How much he loves me. What a king. What awe-inspiring truth this is. Fear-producing. It makes me want to follow him in obedience. For a king that will do that. Now, there's one more way that he describes this ransom. He says it's a perfect ransom. A perfect ransom. Peter compares the Messiah to a lamb without blemish or spot. A lamb without blemish or spot. And he's highlighting the perfection the perfection of the sacrifice. Under the old covenant, Israel was commanded to sacrifice lambs as a substitution for their sin. And they had to be without blemish. And they needed to be without blemish to represent the transfer. The innocent for the guilty. Innocent being the one without blemish, the lamb, and the guilty being the sinning Israelite. And here, by describing Christ in these terms, he's highlighting the perfection of the sacrifice. The life he gave in exchange for ours is a morally perfect life. It's a life without blemish or spot. And that means that no matter what you've done, no matter the evils you've committed, that when you turn to Christ and this sacrifice is applied to you, that his moral perfection is applied to you as well. The great exchange takes place. His righteousness for your sin and God sees you as righteous in Christ. You're incorporated into him. And his life supplied to yours. Or we might say the lamb's blood is spread along the doorposts of your life. And judgment is averted. And that's awe-inspiring too. And it becomes even more amazing to see, yet again, a reference to that second exodus accomplished by the sacrifice of the final Passover lamb. 
The lamb that Isaiah 53 predicts would be led to the slaughter without opening his mouth in verse 7. That lamb who would stand in the place for all the other sheep who had gone astray and turned to his own way, Isaiah 53, verse 6. So stepping back, if we're going to deepen our fear of God, if we're going to obey Him during this exile, in the the face of all kinds of pressure, fear, man, we've got to see just how glorious our ransom is. All that Christ's death has freed us from. Our life might be a little harder in the wilderness, right? Might lack water sometimes, some food sometimes, here and there. Might be a little dusty. But do we want to go back to Egypt? Do we want to forfeit the new land that's coming? That's what ransom means. You've been redeemed. Slavery's broken. You're in the journey, on the sojourn, headed to the new land. And so that, let that fuel your pursuit of holiness now. Now, I know we're almost out of time. I'm hustling, but we got, we got one more reminder here, okay? <clears throat> and for some of you, this last one may not be a reminder as much as it is new info, okay? So just heads up. But when we sink our teeth into this one, it's really going to produce that fear. It's going to motivate our holiness. And the final reminder, what we might, we might call it um, our planned restoration. Our planned restoration. Hang with me here. Just got two or three more minutes here. Our planned restoration, meaning that our restoration, everything we've been talking about, you know, past couple weeks, that being restored to God, that restoration was the goal of God's eternal purpose in Christ. Okay? Our restoration, that was the goal of God's eternal purpose in Christ. Look with me in verse 20. Speaking of Christ, he says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. There's so much here. Um, But if we want to grow in fear, if we want to grow in awe, we've got to realize that our faith in Christ and our hope in him, meaning our restoration to God, that that was all part of the plan. He planned to send Christ from before the earth was formed. And he was revealed for our sake so that we would believe, Peter says. He fulfilled his work, and his work culminated in his resurrection, in his glory, being seated at the right hand of the Father. And all of it, Peter says, was for us, for our benefit, to secure our faith. And Peter's wanting us to see that from start to finish, God planned to restore us. Our salvation was his motive in sending Christ and devising the plan before the world was ever created. You could say that our redemption, our restoration, our faith and hope being in God was the climax of his plan. So let's try to pick this apart and then we're going to wrap it up. Notice initially that Peter starts talking about how Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. What does that mean? It means that before the world ever existed, Christ did. He's eternal with the Father. And that Christ and His mission were foreknown. When you hear that, you might think kind of God knows it beforehand, you know. And that's part of it, but that's not everything in this word. The word has to do with the master plan. Before creation, before the fall, before Abraham, before David, before us, Christ was foreknown by the Father and His mission was planned. And that is staggering by itself. We're just going to leave that there, okay? So he says, Christ was foreknown, yes, but he was revealed now. He was made manifest in the last times. Like the veil was removed, boom, there he is. You know, we all, it's like everything came together in Christ. Millennia of time revealed now. So even though Christ existed eternally, foreknown before creation, He entered into our world at a precise time in the last times, Peter says. But why? He says, for the sake of you. For your sake. For the sake of those who are saved in the last days. 
Now hold that in your mind. So how exactly do we benefit, right? Because through the Messiah's work, he goes on to say, through the Messiah's work, verse 21, through his resurrection and his glorification, he secured our faith and hope. Verse 21. Who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So, bring it all together. He's pre-existent before creation. His destiny planned. And he was revealed in the last days, which he, in those days, he accomplished his work. He was raised. He was glorified. Why? Peter says, for us. To secure our faith. So that our hope would be in God. Your hope. So what's his point? Why did Peter go here at the end of this passage? The end of the sentence, really. How does all this deepen our fear while we're in exile? Here's what I think he's getting at. He's getting at our unique privilege yet again to be in these last days. But he's saying more. He's saying that Christ came when he did for your sake in particular. Of all God's people, the saints in the last days, they have a unique privilege. We've always been in his heart before the world was ever created. And he chose us to live in these days He came for us in these days, and He restored us in these days to live in these days. This is profoundly humbling and is profoundly encouraging to my heart. Why? Because sometimes I lay in bed with my heart racing in fear, wondering what either I or my wife or my children will have to endure for the sake of Christ in the future in these last days. But here Peter's saying that God planned it this way before he created the world. Before he created the world, he put you here. He chose to save you. He made that a reality in time. He's going to use you. This, the, the roaring lion of this world, Satan, that's behind Hamas, behind all these atrocities that we're seeing, won't stop God because he's already planned it. This is unspeakable privilege to live in these last days. Of being restored as a faithful covenant partner to see his mission go forward. It's all part of the plan. Down to the last detail of my life, down to the last drop of suffering that I will endure. And his plan cannot be stopped. And praise God, we're included in that. You are too. And that is awe-inspiring, isn't it? Let's pray. Father, we confess that we can barely get our minds around this stuff. And yet we're thankful. We're thankful that we belong to you. We pray that your spirit would help us see these things more consistently. Help me see these things more consistently. I pray that your spirit would enable us to live in fear, the right kind of fear, the fear that sees you clearly, um, that loves you used by you, that you would use us in these days for your purposes, that you would extend your kingdom through us. However great, however small, um, we're in your hands, and we trust you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.